You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Devin Lincoln, and I'm an attorney in Lozano Smith's Monterey office. Our topic today is a challenging one, using restraints on minor students with exceptional needs. Joining me to discuss this challenging scenario are two terrific members of our special education team, and I'm really excited to introduce them both to you. First, I want to introduce my colleague, Roxana Khan, who works here in the Monterey office with me. Roxana, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Devin. Sure. As mentioned, my name is Roxana Khan, and I'm an attorney here in our Monterey office. It's such a pleasure serving our clients in this area. But as you know, we have offices throughout the state, and previous to living here, I was in San Luis Obispo County and Ventura County, serving clients as far south as Palm Springs, Indio area. So I've had the opportunity to work with a variety of school districts, grappling with similar issues, but in different contexts. Mm -hmm. I've been practicing law for over a decade, serving both private and public clients with my practice focusing almost exclusively on special education and labor and employment. I've actually recently started doing more student discipline work, especially as it intersects with special education and Section 504 students. In these situations, the use of restraints can be an issue, and so I'm excited to be here today to talk about this. Great. Oh, thank you. Um, Next, I'd like to introduce Sarah Garcia who um, has previously headed up our special ed group. Sarah, can you introduce yourself? Sure, thanks, Devin. My name is Sarah Garcia. I'm a partner here at Lozano Smith, practicing in the special education, student, and litigation practice groups. I work mainly out of our Walnut Creek office, um, but I support clients throughout the state. As Roxana mentioned, we have offices throughout the state, and it's... um, nice for us to be able to work with clients throughout the state and see different regions dealing with the same issues, but perhaps in different ways. Prior to becoming an attorney, I was a classroom teacher. Public education has always been a passion and a real calling for me. And I was only able to convince myself to leave the classroom after discovering that this area of law was available, where I could continue to work with amazing administrators, and teachers who show up every day trying to make a positive difference for our students. This is the only type of law I've practiced in my whole career. I've spent my entire uh, 15 years working with public school districts in the state of California. And being able to work with those people who really are showing up to make that positive difference for our students is why I love having that opportunity to do things like this, to provide more additional information and resources to support our clients. No, that's great. Yeah, I think that's great. Really true. Um, okay. Um, as I said, our topic today is the use of restraints. It's a topic with many important human stories behind it. And the situations where this topic come up are often very challenging. Um, I thought I'd start out by asking you both to share a story of a real-life classroom experience where staff felt the need to use restraints on a student, why that happened, and maybe why the, what the consequences of that decision were. Sarah, is there something you can share? Sure. Um, I recently worked on a case having to do with a very young student. He was 
six or seven years old at the time. Um, and he had to be restrained multiple times by various staff at his elementary school. On one occasion, he told an aide that he was going to run into traffic and try and get hit by a car. On another occasion, he um, sat on the floor and began hitting his head against a wall as hard as he could. In both of those circumstances, the only way to prevent him from hurting himself was to restrain him. It's important to note in this case that in neither of these circumstances was the first behavior this level of escalation, mm -hmm. nor was restraint the first intervention attempted. Mm -hmm. The cycle actually started first with a refusal to comply with a demand. He was asked to complete an assignment mm -hmm. or to put something away. He refused to do that when attempts to correct his behavior were utilized. His behavior escalated to defiance, which then became disruption through vocal refusals and acting out. And as the student escalated further and further, a variety of interventions had to be attempted. Mm -hmm. This student actually had a comprehensive de-escalation plan in place in his behavior intervention plan um, and provided for restraints as part of the de-escalation plan as a last resort when nothing else was working to keep him safe. Mm -hmm. It really was a last resort with him. Mm -hmm. But I'll never forget the day that I interviewed the aide about the case and about her work with him. And she told me about a day that the student had to be restrained multiple times. He was having a very difficult day and um, nothing seemed to make much of a difference with his behavior. And on this occasion, you know, he had begun um, hitting his head against the wall and had to be restrained for his own safety. And she told me about how this small seven-year-old boy started crying uh, during the restraint and was visibly scared. And she realized that it wasn't the restraint that was scaring him. And he began to explain that he was scared because he couldn't control his mind and body. Mm. And he was scared of what was happening to him mm. and how out of control he was. And she said it was a really poignant moment for her because she hated having to restrain this child who she cared about very much. Mm -hmm. She worked very closely with him and she cared about him so much and she hated having to put hands on him. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, she realized that yes, in fact, what she was doing was what was keeping him safe mm -hmm. from something he himself couldn't do to keep himself safe. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in those really challenging cases, you know, those are the things that we're looking at. It, it right. It's bigger than just the law that we're talking about today. We're talking about, you know, real kids and real adults who have to make difficult decisions. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's a very powerful story. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing that. Um, Roxana, can you tell me a story about restraints that's come up in your practice to give us some context here? Sure. Uh, so not too long ago, we were working with a district that assessed a student to determine eligibility for special education. The student was engaging in significant disruptive behaviors uh, exhibited in the classroom and interfering with his and even his classmates' learning. The district ended up finding the student eligible and discussed the assessment report and findings at length with the parents during an initial IEP meeting. The parents grappled, though, with the idea of having a child in special education 
And so they hesitated in consenting to the receipt of special education and related services. So as a result, though an IEP had been developed for the child, um, district staff couldn't yet implement it. As part of the IEP, um, similar to what Sarah had just discussed, the team had drafted an escalation cycle management plan to inform those working with the student of the typical antecedents or triggers for the student's behaviors how the behaviors tended to escalate, and what district staff should do in response at each stage of the cycle so that they could effectively assist in de-escalation and positive behavior intervention. Typically, a plan like this is set up so that you have a, if a student does this, then district staff does that sort of fashion. And the cycle, it's called a cycle because it starts with the early escalation behaviors, moves into subsequent escalation behaviors, peaks at severe problem behaviors, and then moves into de-escalation with finally staff looking at post-incident behaviors. Mm-hmm. Now, for mm-hmm. this particular student, the team had determined that when student was in the severe behaviors part of the cycle, because he did in fact have quite severe behaviors, district mm-hmm. staff would use what's called a handle with care restraint as a last resort behavioral intervention in helping him move through that cycle in an appropriate and safe manner. Now, between the time the initial IEP was offered to parents and when they actually provided consent for implementation, the student had a particularly rough day and ran out towards a busy street. Mm -hmm. Now, as you can imagine, this was very scary for district staff seeing this and what could potentially happen. And so when the student refused to stop running, district staff made a quick decision to address his elopement by physically restraining him in the manner that was described in his IEP so as to keep him safe. While district staff were doing what they thought was appropriate in this, um, what was to them a very scary situation and doing what they had thought everybody had agreed to do, and that exact type of situation, such as elopement into an unsafe situation, when parents found out, they actually claimed that the district staff had, quote, assaulted their child by using a restraint without their consent, hmm. which was not at all what district staff had expected that they would have to then contend with. Wow. Well, that's a really difficult situation. Well, in order to understand stories like that, I'd like to discuss what the law says about the use of restraints. So to start off, let's talk about some definitions. I've already heard several of these terms, Um, general education students, special education students, we hear the term students with special needs, IEPs, and sometimes we, we may also be talking about Section 504. So Roxana, can you help me with some introductory definitions of these terms? Sure, so it can get quite complicated, um, but I think it helps to start with the premise that all students, by default, are general education students. And then of those students, there are those who have what are considered under the law to be a disability or disabilities. Under state law and federal law, and when I'm talking about federal law, I mean specifically the IDEA, or the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is a federal grant statute. There are 13 distinct eligibility categories under which a student can qualify for special education based on the characteristics of a disability that they uh, exhibit in the school environment. If the student meets the eligibility criteria for one of those 13 categories, 
and, and that's the important piece, that and, they need special education as a result of the disability or disabilities, then the student is offered an IEP, which is an individualized education plan developed to help the student obtain educational benefit from his or her schooling. Mm -hmm. You will often hear this referred to as FAPE or a free appropriate public education. Mm -hmm. What that means is under the new or clarified standard given to us by the United States Supreme Court, in fact just two years ago in a 2017 case often referred to as Andrew F, that the IEP must be reasonably calculated to enable the child to make progress appropriate in light of the child's circumstances. So what this means is, for example, if you have um, a child whose disability causes the student to exhibit behaviors at school that impede that child's ability to learn, then that child's IEP will recognize behavior as an area of need. It'll offer an annual goal to target increasing his behavioral skills and it will offer him the supports and services needed to achieve the goal and to obtain educational benefit. Now, if a student has a disability but does not need special education or does not meet the criteria for one of the 13 eligibility categories, the student may still have an entitlement to a FAPE, but in that case under a different federal statute, namely Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act or the Americans with Disabilities Act or ADA. Both of those are civil rights statutes, and both of those a school district must comply with, um, one as being a public entity, and two as a recipient of federal funds. Mm -hmm. To qualify uh, for protections under those laws, it's actually a lower standard, and it must only be demonstrated that the student has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities such that a Section 504 plan is needed to provide the student with equal access or opportunity for participation in or benefit from programs and activities offered by the school. A Section 504 plan typically includes accommodations and or modifications provided to the student to give that student equal access. That said, and which sometimes trips up school districts, is that a Section 504 plan may also include a health plan related services, positive behavior interventions, and even in some of the more rare cases, special education. Okay, okay, thank you, that's a lot of information. Um, but that's great context. So with that context, Roxana, what is the law, when does the law in California permit the use of force against general education students or students generally? Yeah, in the general education setting, the education code provides that actions using amount of force that is reasonable and necessary are not uh, construed as corporal punishment if they are used by a person employed by or engaged in a public school to address a threat of physical injury to persons for purposes of self-defense or in the instance where you're trying to obtain a dangerous object from a student. Mm -hmm. Now this is provided for specifically under Education Code Section 49001 meaning that a school district is arguably permitted to restrain a general education student pursuant to the statute and the circumstances I just mentioned. Okay. Okay. So my understanding um, is that until recently, the law did not clearly explain which restraints were permissible and which were not. But as of January 1 of this year, 2019, that's changed. Um, Sarah, can you talk about this new bill? Sure. Yeah, the, the legislature has really made 
an effort just recently to give us some additional clarification about um, the use of restraint with all students. And they passed AB 2657. And AB 2657 first establishes a student's right to be free from the use of seclusion and behavioral restraint Mm -hmm. of any form if it would be used as a means of coercion, discipline, convenience, or retaliation by staff. Mm. So the legislation limits the use of seclusion and behavioral restraints, and that would be both mechanical restraints and physical restraints uh, for any student under those circumstances, and really puts parameters on the situations in which behavioral restraints and seclusion may be used. Mm Specifically, school districts and non-public schools and agencies may use behavioral restraint and seclusion only to control behavior that poses a clear and present danger of serious physical harm to the pupil or others that cannot be immediately prevented by a response that is less restrictive. Mm. So what the legislature is telling us is the factors really include A clear and present danger Mm -hmm. to self or others, which means a clear and present danger of injury to persons. That has to be a danger of immediacy, and it has to be a danger of serious physical harm. Mm -hmm. And it has to be a serious, imminent physical harm that cannot be precluded in another way. So really, restraint is our last resort It is the last option that we should be turning to, and we should only be turning to it when it is the only option we have available to us to keep a person safe. So when a restraint becomes necessary, what are some of the things that district staff cannot do under this new law? So the district may not use a behavioral restraint Um, as I said earlier, for coercion, discipline, convenience, or retaliation. So restraint is not an appropriate disciplinary response. Mm -hmm. It is not Mm -hmm. a response to bad behavior or an attempt to correct behavior. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be used as retaliation because a student did something wrong or because a student took a swing at a teacher. Mm -hmm. The teacher should then restrain the child in response. Mm Really, the, the equation isn't about what the child has done before mm-hmm. and responding to that behavior. The equation is what do we anticipate the child is going to do next mm. and what is the imminent danger of serious mm-hmm. harm mm-hmm. that will occur if we do not restrain. If we do nothing, what do we think is going to happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, districts also should not use behavioral restraint of any kind that would restrict breathing that would include but not be limited to using pillows, blankets, carpets, um, anything to cover a student's face. Um, and there are also, um, there's also a lot of training provided to staff who are trained in these de- de-escalation programs to make sure that mm-hmm. restraints are used safely. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, unfortunately and tragically, um, in November of 2018, Um, There actually was a student who died Mm -hmm. during a prone restraint at a non-public school. Um, And we don't know all of the circumstances of that case. Um, But 
We, you have to make sure that when the restraint is being applied, it is not being an apply, applied in a way that is restricting the student's ability to breathe. Mm -hmm. um, students should not be placed face down with their hands behind their back. Mm -hmm. um, that does impair their ability to breathe and is extremely dangerous. So that type of restraint should never be used mm -hmm. and is contrary to the training of all of the de-escalation and restraint programs that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. Um, restraints should also, and I think this is a critical component, not be used for any longer than is necessary to eliminate the clear and present danger of serious physical harm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there is a perception that once a child is restrained, they should remain in the restraint until they are calm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a misconception. They really should only remain in the restraint until there is no longer a clear and present imminent danger of mm -hmm. serious physical harm. So even if they are not completely calm and completely compliant, if the risk of harm has been eliminated, the restraint should be ended. Yeah. So it's really about using restraint as a last resort mm -hmm. and in as limited a way as possible to maintain the student's dignity and safety of everyone. Mm. Okay, it sounds like that requires a lot of careful training. Um, Roxana, what about seclusion? When is it appropriate for a student to be entirely separated from human contact, even for a short period of time? Yeah, um, seclusion is most definitely not favored under the law, and it's rarely appropriate to use, which I think most of us know. I mean, I think that's pretty much a given, but the key to remember is that when a school district has an obligation to provide FAPE, as I was discussing earlier, that obligation includes providing it, and what we often hear as uh, the LRE, meaning the least restrictive environment appropriate. So seclusion, of course, is going to be the most restrictive environment as you are entirely separating that mm -hmm. child from others. Mm -hmm. Unsurprisingly, then, AB 2657 bans the use of locked seclusion unless the facility is otherwise licensed or permitted to use a locked room. And even if the room is not locked, a student placed in seclusion must be under constant direct observation at all times. Seclusion, um, as Sarah mentioned with behavioral restraints, should be a last resort only when used uh, when necessary and for as long as necessary. Uh, again, as Sarah said, it's not appropriate to use it for discipline, convenience, uh, retaliation, or coercion. Okay. so. Up till now, we've been discussing how restraints can be used against students generally. Um, but as I understand it, AB 2657 applies whether or not the student has an IEP or 504 plan. Is that right, Roxana? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So is there additional law that applies to using restraints with students with special needs? Yeah, there's a, um, a standing law that a special education student may be restrained in an emergency to control unpredictable spontaneous behavior that again poses a clear and present danger of serious physical harm to the student or others and which cannot be immediately prevented by a response less restrictive than the temporary restraint mm -hmm. and this has been specifically provided for under the special education provisions of uh, california's education code okay okay so sarah i know that a lot of ieps address behavioral interventions designed to address the underlying needs of the student. So how do restraints fit into an IEP, if at all? You know, that's an excellent question because I think sometimes they do and sometimes they're not there. Mm 
And so we have to be looking at this from both perspectives. Emergency interventions like restraint cannot be used as a substitute for systematic behavioral intervention designed to change, replace, modify, or eliminate target behaviors. So when you're talking about a student who has a behavioral intervention plan, that behavioral intervention plan should target the replacement behaviors and teach the student to use the positive behaviors that we want to see. Okay. Restraint is not a substitute for that. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there are situations like the story that I was telling at the beginning where the student's comprehensive behavioral intervention plan because of the types of behaviors and the types of dangerous behaviors that were being routinely seen with this student, um, the behavioral intervention plan was developed in a way to include a variety of de-escalation strategies leading up to and ultimately including restraint if necessary to address safety. Mm -hmm. So if restraint is going to be involved in a student's systematic plan, Um, It should be indicated as the last resort, and oftentimes it is included in an IEP for that purpose so that there is an assurance that everyone who's working on that child's behavior intervention plan receives the in-depth training that we've been talking about to make sure that those restraints are applied safely and correctly. But the law that Roxana just reviewed also talks about unpredictable and spontaneous behavior. And because it addresses spontaneous behavior, I think it's important to understand that there are circumstances under which a student with special needs might need to be restrained and restraint might not be written into a behavior intervention plan or an IEP. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The law contemplates that spontaneous behavior, um, unpredictable behavior, that is behavior that we might not have a seen fit to address through a behavior intervention plan because it was unpredictable. And so if what is required to keep the student safe is that restraint, then the law does allow us to utilize um, that strategy. Mm -hmm. Again, so long as that restraint is not employed for any longer than necessary to contain the behavior, um, doesn't exceed what is reasonable or necessary under the circumstances, and really is targeting that imminent threat of serious bodily injury to a person. Okay, okay. So I want to bring this discussion back to the stories that you each told at the beginning. And Sarah, you were doing this a little bit a few minutes ago. What are some of the legal issues that are raised by the story you told? Um, how, how could that story have, are, are there any legal issues that we learn from that story? Well, there are a lot of legal issues that were raised by the story, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I ended up interviewing the aide about this particular situation was because a lawsuit was initiated by the family. Mm. And much like the story that Roxana told, um, in that lawsuit, the family was arguing that the student had been assaulted by way of these restraints that had been um, Mm -hmm. done really to keep the student safe. There are several legal issues that come up. Anytime we put hands on a child, um, there is a question of whether or not it was reasonable and necessary, because what is not reasonable and necessary could be considered assault. So we have to make sure that it is reasonable and necessary to prevent that imminent harm. One of the legal issues that we spent a lot of time analyzing in that case is what is imminent harm. Imminent 
really does mean imminent. It really does mean about to happen and will happen immediately if we don't initiate the restraint. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what I talked about earlier, one of the legal issues um, really becomes how long does that restraint last? How long is the restraint maintained? Mm-hmm. Um, there are some questions about how many people are involved in the restraint. Um, some restraints require more than one person um, to be done safely. Restraints are also extremely um, physical for the person doing the restraining. They can be very exhausting because mm-hmm. the person doing the restraining is supporting their own weight during the restraint. And so oftentimes staff will have to um, take turns in what might be a lengthy restraint in order to mm-hmm. keep a situation safe. And we want to make sure that the person being restrained is safe and the staff who's being asked right. to perform the restraint are safe. In addition to that, there are issues related to documentation, making sure that the documents, um, making sure restraints are documented appropriately and reported appropriately. And if we're talking about a student with special needs, making sure that the IEP team meets to discuss the behaviors that resulted in the restraint and whether or not additional positive behavior intervention strategies are necessary to avoid getting to that place again or whether a program needs to change. And then I think there's also a legal issue related to the social and emotional components of restraint Mm. and understanding that restraints do affect people emotionally and psychologically, both the person being restrained and the person doing the restraint. Mm -hmm. And we have to make sure that we're keeping that in mind and addressing those issues as appropriate Mm -hmm. and making sure that in the midst of all of this, while we're seeking to protect physical safety, we're also addressing social emotional safety Mm -hmm. and the dignity of all of the people involved. Okay. Um, So Roxanne, in the situation you described, um, what did it, why did it make a difference that the parents had not consented to the IEP? Yeah, well, so it's interesting because prior to the change in law, as of a few months, just a few months ago, so in January 2019, there were no explicit provisions allowing for the use of a restraint in relation to a general education student. It was just generally understood that that was not a condoned or typical practice, of course. Um, but in order to be deemed a special education student, that student's parents must consent to the special education eligibility and receipt of special education and related services. Absent that consent, a school district cannot implement an IEP, including any use of restraint that may be provided for in that IEP. Mm -hmm. If parents do not consent to an initial IEP or special education eligibility, I think the districts should really um, consider reminding parents in that situation that the student will not have the protections and rights afforded by the IDEA or under Section 504, and as such, they'll be subject to the same disciplinary procedures just as a general Mm -hmm. education student, Mm -hmm. which is huge. I mean, that's an important distinction. So in other words, the student can be suspended and or expelled from school for his behavior um, irrespective of any disability. Right, right. Big picture, I, I'm wondering if we know how often restraints are being used in the school setting. Sarah, is there any data on that? Well, 
AB 2657 will require there to be data on that. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. As part of AB 2657, school districts, non-public schools, and uh, non-public agencies are supposed to collect and report data on the use of restraints and seclusion to the California Department of Education, and that's supposed to be reported annually moving mm-hmm. on, um, no later than three months after the end of a school year. The report will have to include the number of students who were subjected to um, restraint, either mechanical or physical. Mm -hmm. It will have to include the number of times restraint was used. Um, It will have to include the number of students who were uh, put into seclusion and the number of times that seclusion was used. Mm -hmm. And then that information will have to be disaggregated by race, ethnicity, gender, Uh, with separate counts for students who have IEPs, students who have 504 plans, and students who do not have IEPs or 504 plans. So currently, restraint information is reported to the state through special education programs for students who have IEPs, but it hasn't previously been reported because we didn't previously have the statutory authority for restraint Mm -hmm. uh, relating to general education students. So one of the things that um, I think big picture is an important takeaway from AB 2657 is to make sure that everyone within the district is utilizing the same operational definitions for what restraint is, what seclusion is, what a mechanical restraint is, what a physical restraint is, and that everyone is using the same reporting processes when a restraint occurs to ensure that the data being reported through a student services office for general education students matches and compares to data that's being reported to the state from a special education office. Mm -hmm. Right now, our special education departments probably have a process by which they track and report this information. Mm -hmm as our student services offices are developing that process, um, it it will be important to ensure consistency between the two departments um, so that there isn't an argument that um, students are being treated differently if they have disabilities than they would be as general education students. Right, okay, great. Okay, well, in in closing, um, I'd like to ask you both for some general thoughts on, on how schools can best navigate these difficult issues. So Roxana, what are your general thoughts? What's your general advice for school districts on how to think about restraints, how to train staff, how to work with parents? Sarah just sounded some of these themes, but what are some of the things that you tell clients? Yeah, well, I think this has been a really good discussion. And um, first and foremost, I think it's just important that school sites are familiar with the change in law and that they update their staff accordingly. Um, School teams, I think, should be proactive in addressing behavior issues that arise and I would say that's true whether it's respect um, whether it's with respect to special education students or students with uh, exceptional needs or just general education students in general I think that'll help them so that they're not left making decisions in the heat of the moment that Mm -hmm. um, may not be legally defensible or that end up um, backfiring um, in the long term great advice. Sarah, what are your thoughts? I think it's important that any conversation about restraint 
start with a conversation about behavioral intervention mm -hmm. and that we make sure that we are looking at student behavior um, through the lens of the escalation cycle that we've been talking about today, making sure that our focus on behavioral intervention is on preventing restraint um, and making sure that all staff are appropriately trained to understand that restraint is absolutely a last resort, that it is something we do everything we can to avoid, um, and that if we are required to restrain to prevent imminent harm to a student or another person, that that restraint be done in the least restrictive way possible, that it, in terms of um, duration, intensity, location, we're always thinking about preserving the dignity of the child, the dignity of the person doing the restraint, um, that our focus is on keeping everyone safe, um, but we're thinking about keeping everyone safe in a behaviorally appropriate way um, to make sure that we are not overusing restraint, restraining students any longer than necessary or any more often than necessary. That's great. Yeah, thank you for that insight. Um, and thank you both for this conversation. It's been a pleasure talking with you both. Agreed. Thanks so much, Devin. Thank you so much, Devin. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com podcast to find in links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, everybody. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.